Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I am joined today by one of our first international guests, Jean-Michel Payon from Paris, France. Thank you for joining us, Jean-Michel. Thank you, Daniel. And nice to see you all and uh, glad to be there with you guys. Yes, thank you. It's great to, great to see you again. Our families have become great friends and, and it's great to spend, spend some time with you. So, Jean-Michel, we have uh, some prepared questions, of course, but I wanted to get your sense today. It's January 11th, about lunchtime here in, here in the U.S., and Bitcoin, that has been absolutely on fire, uh, is now falling precipitously. You know, it had reached nearly 42,000, I believe, and now is hovering right around 30,000. You don't work at an exchange, but you do work in the crypto industry. What is, what is a day like today like for, for you and your colleagues? Well, t- today is a, is a special day indeed, as you said. So I think that over the weekend, the uh, Bitcoin price uh, went to 42K, I think. Uh, and uh, just like a couple of minutes ago, it fell down to 30K something. Um, so yes, the, the, the move has been uh, extremely fast uh, on, the, on, the, on the downside, I would say, in the, in the past, uh, let's say, 24, 36 hours. Um, gen- for, for Ledger, because Ledger is uh, actually a security company and we, we are basically providing solutions for uh, crypto uh, users, either uh, individuals uh, or, or enterprise. I must say that for, for us, the direct impact is not so much because we are not an exchange. Uh, so we, we, we kind of provide security of the underlying assets, um, which is the private keys. Uh, but we don't we don't see the move uh, of the the same kind of volumes or, or, or move that uh, probably an exchange um, can have on those special day and 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 probably that uh, the the exchange uh, like Kraken, Coinbase, and Bitstamp and a couple of others probably have a a, a, a horrible day in terms of uh, order flows and stuff like that. Um, but for Ledger specifically speaking, I, I, we we didn't have any any direct impact. Uh, on our own business so far, but you know, it's uh, volatility is there, uh, and we all know that when volatility is an asset class, it can be good or bad. Uh, all depends how it ends. So that that brings me to to a question I have for you as as a Bitcoin enthusiast, right? As a believer in Bitcoin, what sort of price action do you see? as being optimal for its widespread adoption, right? Like you're, you're certainly going to turn some heads with the upswings we've had in recent days, you know, sometimes being up a thousand dollars in just, a, you know, a few minutes. Uh, but then you're, you're also going to scare off investors with, with days like today. So what price action do you think lends itself to, to healthy growth for, for the asset class? Well, I must say that to, to, to drive the widespread adoption, um, it's more than the price in itself uh, that is only a consequence of uh, the uncertainty regarding the underlying value, I would say, of the asset in itself. I think it's really how many uh, use cases uh, the Bitcoin or crypto in general can actually answer. Um, so honestly, I think that what we see right now on the market is uh, a lot of speculation. 
um, because people are, are buying uh, at a certain price because they're afraid they will not be able to buy tomorrow, uh, which is by definition a, a very specific uh, part of the of the cycle, I would say, of the bull cycle. Um, I think that uh, to, to gain a real adoption, Bitcoin um, and specifically needs probably to get a, a better uh, and, a and a smaller volatility. Uh, obviously, we would have had this call last week, uh, probably that the discussion would have been totally different because the, the growth in price had been rather steady, I would say, from, uh, let's say, the late summer until the very first days of, uh, of 2021. Uh, when we had a, a, a big uh, increase in price, but that was very, um, you know, uh, progressive, I would say. Uh, and that's for sure that in the past week, we had a, 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 an increase that had been uh, very, very, very large and in very small time frame. So that's, that's for me, the definition of a, of a highly volatile market. But before that, it was okay, actually, because if you look at the Bitcoin price and the volatility, so let's take, for instance, the 30 days volatility, I think that before today, so I, I, did, my, I did my study for my homeworks on Friday or something, last Friday, I think that the, the 30 days volatility was some, sometime around 15%, 1.5 uh, for, um, for crypto and Bitcoin specifically. Uh, and actually, sorry, it's one year volatility. Uh, 15%. So it was below the oil, uh, the mm. Brent and, the, and, and stuff like that, which was around 25 or something percent. So that's, that's more than the oil uh, markets, which, is, uh, which has been quite volatile actually at the beginning of, uh, of past year. Uh, but obviously, it's still more volatile than uh, usual uh, competitors to Bitcoin like uh, gold or US equities that are more in the range of uh, 8 to 10%. Um, but yes, to, to get to your point, I think that um, volatility... Uh, is actually the enemy of any asset class uh, because it's, uh, it's, it's good for traders, but it's not so good for long-term investors. And what, what we believe that will be the key things for the, for the better adoption of the Bitcoin is that we have got more and more long-term investors, whether they are retail investors or whether they are institutional investors. And that's really what the Bitcoin market wants. So if, if we were to have this conversation five, ten years from now, do you anticipate that, that volatility will be lower then? Do you think five or 10 years from now, volatility in Bitcoin will look more like something like US equities or, or international equities? Or do you think it will remain a volatile uh, asset throughout its lifetime? No, I totally, I totally believe in the, in the former, actually. So I, I truly believe that uh, the more this asset class that is actually very, very young, right? So it's uh, only exists for uh, 12 years now, and actually as a real assets, I mean, that has been really traded and, uh, and generally speaking, it's probably four or five years max. Before that, there were not that many people that were actually investing and trading Bitcoin. So yes, I, I believe that we will uh, eventually come maybe in five, 10 years to, to, the, to the level that you just mentioned, US equity and, and the rest. Uh, and to achieve that, I think that uh, we will also see um, more and more um, um, institutional uh, entities uh, like arbitragists, uh, funds, and, uh, you know, hedge fund and, and, and things like that, that will actually take any kind of uh, benefit of uh, large drop in price or large increase in price to actually short it or, or, or get long on that. Um, I think that the, 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 mo the, more, the more institutional investors and, and professional investors we have in that market, 
and also the more uh, numerous uh, financial instrument we have to deal with that, and the more the stability of the price will be. Uh, because I, I believe that right now we also have a, a kind of consequence today of uh, probably over leverage uh, from some uh, retail and uh, other investors that uh, over leverage themselves uh, during the previous uh, bull cycle and uh, that, uh, that got stuck by uh, probably liquidation and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I think you make a, a wise case that it's perhaps, you know, the long-term future of Bitcoin is less... Uh, less about the price action and more about some compelling use cases. Um, what do you see as the primary use case for Bitcoin? I, I know that some have referred to it as digital gold. Uh, others see it as, as more of a currency. Where, where do you see Bitcoin being used and what are, some, what are some use cases today and what do you see as its ultimate uh, primary use case? Well, that's uh, actually the funny is uh, funny enough is that I, I have uh, an article in preparation for the past months on this topic because I have a lot of friends that uh, uh, ask me about you know what is this asset class of Bitcoin or, or crypto in general. Um, so yes, for me actually it's funny because if you uh, if you look at that with a bit of distance, Bitcoin is a new asset uh, with a lot of characteristics that actually uh, kind of of hybrid origins. Um, so I would say that from my perspective, and that's only my perspective, uh, I, I see a lot of similarity with, uh, as you just said, uh, precious metals and specifically gold, uh, basically for the use case of, uh, of uh, storage of value. Uh, that is a scarcity and, and, and things like that. So that definitely looks like a precious metal that is digital. Uh, and as you said, digital gold is a kind of a nickname of the Bitcoin. Um, I also recognize some kind of patterns uh, because we talk about crypto assets, but sometimes we also talk about cryptocurrencies. And sometimes I also recognize the, the pattern, the price uh, movement of uh, currencies of ultra-emerging countries uh, that are moving very fast, depending on a lot of uh, external uh, you know, ev events like, uh, like a fund uh, investing in a country or, or leaving a country or whatsoever. Um, and uh, and last but not least, I also think that the kind of um, the the similarity also comes with uh, the stocks of very high growth small cap tech companies that are listed, you know, on OTC markets or or, or stuff like that, uh, where you have a lot of volatility also, but you also have a lot of uh, potential, you know, in some of those projects. Uh, and just like that, they behave a bit with, uh, with a lot of, uh, again, volatility on, uh, on intraday and sometimes overnight. Um, and so, uh, yeah, to, to make it short, precious metals, currencies, and stock of high growth uh, small cap uh, company uh, makes for me the, the best of the, of the, of the breed of the, of the Bitcoin somehow. Mm -hmm. So one of the most common critiques of Bitcoin from, from sort of a use perspective is, is its slow processing speed. So I believe that Bitcoin, the Bitcoin blockchain processes something like tra seven transactions per second uh, versus something like Visa that you know, does, does thousands per second. I hear talk of the Lightning Network, but I don't quite know what that means. Is, is there anything being done to remedy this drawback or do you think it's, it, it will always be slow? Oh, uh, so that's a, that's a great question. Actually, scalability of uh, the Bitcoin blockchain uh, has always been a, a key topic, I would say, in the, in the sector uh, since the early days in 2009. 
Um, just to, to 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 go back to what you just said in terms of uh, of um, of number of transactions per day, right? So uh, if I do the math well, uh, I think that uh, Visa is supposed to um, manage kind of 150 million transactions per day. Uh, while Bitcoin is currently doing, and it's actually public, you have uh, official figures on that. Uh, if you type Bitcoin and transaction per day. Uh, so the Bitcoin protocol, Bitcoin blockchain um, um, manage 400,000 transactions per day right now. So that's definitely not as much as the 150 million for Visa network. Um, but I think that it's only the beginning first. Uh, and what would so matters is not much the number of transactions, but more the amount uh, that is transacted. And on that, I think that right now we are around 10 billion per day, 10 billion USD per day uh, on the spot and, uh, and derivative markets on uh, Bitcoin only, uh, which is okay. Um, and that is growing. Um, and, uh, and also, if you look at the difference in terms of transaction per second, um, I think that yes, the, the Bitcoin protocol has, has its own uh, limitation that are actually also its strengths, uh, which is about the security uh, of of the network, um, because that's also part of the of the value proposition to have this uh, this uh, ten minutes uh, backlog uh, between each block uh, of transaction, and that's actually one of the key components of the of the Bitcoin blockchain that makes it uh, at the same time fully decentralized and and totally uh, unhackable somehow. Um, so just to answer your question differently, I think that uh, for the Bitcoin protocol specifically, we actually have seen uh, an improvement in the situation and in the number of transactions that can be processed uh, in, the past, in the past five years. Um, we have actually regularly uh, upgrade of the protocol itself that uh, enable uh, you know, a larger number of transactions uh, or um, a wider number of transactions itself. And basically, that's, that's the key thing. So that's really the, the key conclusion for me on that is that um, it's not a, a fixed technology. The, the Bitcoin blockchain is not fixed. It's ever evolving. Uh, the core protocol can be modified somehow during the, during the process, and therefore it can be improved. So that's really important to bear that in mind because um, it's not totally limited by its current uh, form. Uh, and again, just as we said about you know, where we stand in 10 years from now, I think that in 10 years, we'll probably have much more transaction to be managed on the, on the, Bit on the Bitcoin blockchain. It's, that's interesting. I, I had imagined that it was sort of static and, and unmovable and that the, the technology wouldn't, wouldn't progress much, but it sounds like it's getting quicker and it's able to do more and that there's, there's even the potential for it to, to do more over time. So an, another question that I have, Jean-Michel, is that you know throughout the years, when we look at the history of money, Humankind has used everything from shells to cattle to leather to, of course, metal coins and, and fiat as currency. Bitcoin is the most prominent of the digital currencies, but do you think there's a chance that it will be improved upon and replaced? Like, is this, you know, is this, is this the first iteration of a digital currency which we will learn from, improve upon, and replace? Or do you think this will be the king of digital currencies if we were to talk 10 years from now that, that it would still be on top? Well, that's an excellent question. And I, I think that the, the, the one that can answer that question right 
uh, will probably be very wealthy. Um, <laughs> so I, I try to be humble on that because uh, I, I've been, as you know, in financial markets before uh, in my previous life. And um, I know that it's not um, easy to, to come up with uh, some definite, uh, definitive conclusion uh, about uh, a forecast in uh, in the trajectory of uh, an asset or, or, or a company or whatsoever. Uh, but what I must say, again, from my own analysis, and that's only my own analysis, is the fact that Bitcoin's success um, is actually made of three things uh, that are very difficult to compete with right now by the rest of the, of the other coins, I would say. The first is that it's the first of its kind to actually manage um, thanks to a very extremely smart uh, initial design uh, by Satoshi Nakamoto um, that found this uh, double spending uh, trick uh, to avoid it, actually. And that's, that's something that uh, all the cryptographs and, and, and tech guys in the, in the ages have, have tried to figure out. And actually, he or they managed to find a way to, ma to manage that. So really, it's, the Bitcoin success is really about these very smart initial design that has been only copied since then. Uh, it has been somehow improved uh, for specific uh, blockchains, uh, but always at the price of something. The second element for me of Bitcoin success and uh, is about the fact that I just said about the ongoing uh, improvement in the protocol uh, that makes it uh, always stronger. Uh, and last but not least, it's the first. Uh, it has been, it's still the, the largest by far, right? So I think it's the total market cap of crypto. Uh, Bitcoin represents 70% uh, or something like that. So it's still the leader by far. Uh, and so you've got a strong network effect because if you talk to people about crypto, well, some of them might know, some of them might not know, but actually if you talk about Bitcoin, they mostly know that. And actually Bitcoin is really the key assets uh, in which most of the people that are entering the market in crypto invest. So the, Bitcoin has a big advantage uh, against the rest of the, of the crypto assets, I would say. So that's, that's for me a very, very important element. And now to continue on your question, uh, do I see any other um, you know, assets, crypto assets to take over Bitcoin? Honestly, in the next five years, I don't. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of very interesting uh, projects and crypto assets. We know Ethereum for sure. Uh, there's obviously Tezos, Polkadot, Cosmos, and a couple of other great projects uh, that are there. Um, but uh, Bitcoin has so much advanced in terms of uh, uh, adoption and, and network effect that it's very difficult to compete in the next five years. That doesn't mean, uh, because I, I, was, I was old enough, I'm old enough to, to, to have known uh, Yahoo and, and, and see uh, Google and, and the likes coming up and, and, and getting this lion's share of the market in the search in the internet. So maybe we'll have this kind of Google that will come up out of nowhere and, and, and get over everything in the crypto space. But right now, Bitcoin is, is really, really at the forefront and has a lot of uh, advance on this competition, I think. So one of the reasons I uh, view you as such a resource and, and I learned so much from you about these things is because you are humble, right? You've, uh, you've been in the business for some time. I think you think about both sides of the equation. So in the, in the spirit of that humility, 
What do you see as the biggest threat to the growth of Bitcoin in, in the years to come? And in specific, are you worried about regulatory risk? You know, we saw what happened with XRP recently. I know it's a, a little bit of a different animal, but w- what do you see as the bear case for, for Bitcoin in the years to come? Well, that's, that's a good question, actually. <laughs> it's probably some kind of thing that keeps me awake at night most of the time. <laughs> uh, you know, what, what can kill Bitcoin? Um, so, well, funny enough, and uh, again, I, I don't have all the answers to that, but I, I believe that um, Bitcoin, the more, I, the more I, I look into that, the more I, I learn, the more I study it, uh, the more I find it as an incredible asset animal, I would say. Uh, because it's really, it's so decentralized that actually the type of things that happen to XRP uh, at the end of December cannot happen. Because basically, for those of you uh, we don't know. So XRP is a crypto asset, uh, and there has been the SEC that recognized it as a security, and therefore uh, basically put um, a lot of pressure on a company uh, that is called Ripple, Ripple Labs, that is behind XRP, uh, and obviously uh, uh, behind the founders of the of the of the company. Uh, and actually, it cannot happen for Bitcoin, for instance, because <laughs> there is no company behind Bitcoin. You cannot sue Satoshi Nakamoto uh, because nobody knows who he is or who they are. Uh, and there is no company making benefit uh, out of the protocol in itself because it's totally decentralized. Um, so I would say that the, the only possibility and regulation, obviously, can have a lot of impact on that. And we've seen that. Uh, I, I would say that if I had to summarize my thoughts, um, the two risks I would see, for sure, regulatory, uh, but... I'm not sure um, it will happen because uh, it could have happened before and it has not happened yet. So I, I don't really see why it would happen now. Uh, you know, it was before, you know, like five, seven years ago, uh, it was easier to kind of come up with a strong relation against it. Plus all the uh, efforts that we've seen in some markets and some specific jurisdiction to prevent people from buying Bitcoin actually uh, has not been a success because you can in any event, because it's only, it's internet-based money, right? So actually, as soon as you've got access to internet, nothing can prevent you from buying Bitcoin, I would say. Uh, and so if you really have to look uh, at, the, at the highest level, what could prevent Bitcoin from being there? I think the only way is to cut internet. Hmm. So, you know, you make an interesting point there about Ripple and XRP. The more I learn about Bitcoin and crypto broadly, the, the problems arise when you try to re, re-centralize a decentralized currency. When you try to, you know, make it, when, when you give a target again, there's something for, for the regulators to, to uh, swing at. But when there's no target, it's, it's hard to take it down. So one of, the, one of the sort of mantras, I think, of the fintech space following the initial rise and, and fall of Bitcoin in, in 2017 and 2018, it, it became sort of popular for people to say that they believed in the blockchain, but not Bitcoin. Uh, how interconnected is the fate of, of blockchain technology broadly with Bitcoin and, and can one succeed without the other? Well, the Bitcoin, the, the blockchain, not Bitcoin, uh, indeed has been, has been very popular in the past three, four years, I would say. Um, 
So, and actually what you, what we call by blockchain, not Bitcoin is actually widely known as private blockchains, right? Mm -hmm. um, so private blockchains, uh, and that, uh, unlike the public blockchain like Bitcoin, uh, are actually gathering participants, uh, that are there upon invitation only, uh, and that are there, uh, to manage the nodes. Uh, but you, you, you have to be invited to manage a node and to actually, um, validate a transaction, I would say. Uh, so that's uh, the, the 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 biggest difference with the with the Bitcoin protocol and the public blockchain like Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or stuff like that. Um, and as soon as you get a central authority for those private blockchain, basically you you recentralize, as you said, uh, Daniel, you recentralize the power of uh, saying uh, who can trade, who cannot trade, what is possible to do, and also to revert. Uh, a transaction, which is obviously uh, very practical for some use case, uh, but that is totally um, opposite to what Bitcoin enable. Because Bitcoin, you cannot get back uh, on the transaction. Uh, when it's done, it's done, which is good and bad at the same time, depending on <laughs> what happens. Uh, but that's really this uh, this kind of things uh, on the on the private blockchain uh, that have been there in the past four five years, I would say, um, and. If, if I can take a little bit of a parallel with, uh, again, the internet world, I would say that private blockchain for me reminds me a lot uh, in their design, uh, like the intranet, you know, uh, back in the years of uh, 1990 and uh, 1999, sorry, and, and 2000, where, where you had a lot of projects on the intranet and uh, that, that could make things that internet could not do and vice versa. Uh, and actually, we, we we ended up having everything on the internet actually because uh, openness always wins at the end. Uh, because uh, when you limit things, uh, it's it's okay for certain use cases, but you always find someone that will find a better way to do things openly. Uh, so I I believe that uh, private blockchain uh, will probably continue for some use cases, uh, but I see more and more public blockchain as being um, the ultimate winner of all those big projects. And actually, uh, thanks to you uh, in the US, uh, in, uh, it, actually it was last week, uh, there was this uh, uh, announcement of the OCC, uh, which is the um, Office, uh, of, uh, Office of the Controller of, uh, the, um, of the Currency uh, in the US that authorized US Bank to use a public blockchain and stablecoin for settlement. So that's a big, big news for the crypto market uh, that have been made by the OCC. Uh, and that's really opened the door for all the banks in the US to now be officially authorized to use public blockchain like Bitcoin, Ethereum, or Tezos blockchain uh, to manage settlement and transaction on that. So I think it's, very, it's a, really a key moment uh, for, the, for the crypto space. And actually, that has been one of the elements of last week's uh, increase in price uh, for, for some of those public uh, crypto. So if I think that the title of this podcast needs to be openness always wins. I, I like that, you know, that the openness <laughs> always wins. And with respect to that openness, another term that's being thrown around a lot now is DeFi or decentralized finance. Uh, what is DeFi and where do you see that openness of DeFi adding value? Well, DeFi is, uh, as you said, it's uh, it's a term that uh, that popped up in the past year, let's say. But even though it has always been around, actually, it's uh, it's simply a way to actually manage the same kind of financial application we know in the traditional financial world, let's say. So, lending, borrowing, insurance, 
funding, uh, derivatives, etc. Uh, but those applications are powered by um, actually what we call smart contracts. Uh, smart contracts. Uh, so as, it, as the name says it, it's uh, it's contracts that are uh, uh, that are smart. So they, they are they are supposed to uh, understand what we what we ask them, uh, and they are basically lines of codes. Uh, that are embedded inside a uh, uh, public blockchain. And, and the most active one is the blockchain of Ethereum, uh, which is by design made for smart contracts. Uh, and basically what happens is that you've got those smart contracts that are literally lines of code um, that are uh, basically drafted by, by uh, developers uh, and that uh, asks uh, the smart contract to execute certain operations based on certain events happening, uh, whether it's a price movement, whether it's a, a call for action, whether it's a, a specific uh, cross in price or whatsoever. And it's very powerful because it's totally automatic. Uh, it's totally automatic and it means that basically as soon as you know how to code, uh, you, you basically put those uh, smart contracts online and, and you, as, a, as the end users, you directly interact with this smart contract that also interact with another user. Uh, and basically, it totally uh, eliminates the middleman topic because everything is done by a computer, basically. So it's very powerful for some automatic uh, transaction system, for instance, or for some lending and borrowing, or for some gambling or betting or whatsoever. It's very, very powerful. And we've seen that, uh, again, in the past 12 months, a lot of attraction in the DeFi world. Um, and, and I think that actually it's really, again, about, about open finance. Uh, because uh, you just have to, to, to get two people that are interacted on this specific smart contract and you don't have to have a human in the, in the, mean, in the between anymore. So that's, uh, that's something that is closely looked, I think, by uh, a lot of financial institutions right now um, because it's, uh, it's really, it has a lot of potential to disrupt a lot of services that are currently offered by financial institutions, I think. Thank, thank you. So Jean-Michel, you have been fantastic before we close, I want to put you through the lightning round. I will ask you, uh, I'll ask you a question and you just tell me the, the first thing that comes to your head, okay? Okay, okay. First question, uh, what is a FinTech in France that the US would do well to adopt? Well, uh, generally speaking, US leads on the FinTech space, so that's a tough question. Um, well. The only thing that I would say is, um, yeah, we, we've been not so bad. Uh, you know, there's this, uh, because of COVID, there's um, this public emergency funding to help corporates in France, uh, actually. So the government basic, basically decided to propose specific loans uh, to enable companies and corporates to, to continue to, to, to exist, I would say. Uh, and actually, they, they figure out the French government uh, considered that they would not be quick enough uh, with the classic traditional banking system uh, to actually um, distribute those loans. Uh, and they use uh, fintech solutions for that uh, and fintech companies in France. Uh, so I think it's, uh, it's probably the, the thing that I think of uh, for which maybe France could, could have a, a bit of uh, uh, a better stuff on the fintech space than in the US. Sounds like, sounds like a really innovative program and something, something we should take a look at. Okay, so this next one, I'm, I'm excited for this one. A French phrase for which there is no proper English equivalent. Oh, la la. Um, 
I would say c'est la vie. Uh, c'est la vie means uh, that's life. Um, but it's, um, it's even more philosophical than that. C'est la vie is very... If you say so in France, c'est la vie, it means so many things at the same time. It can be very positive and very negative and very, you know, it's, it's a world that says a story in itself. There's a, I, I speak uh, Filipino, so I speak a second language. And there are, there are times when there, there are certain phrases in Filipino that just don't, don't translate to English. And so that's, I like that. C'est la vie. <laughs> it has a lot more depth than just that's life. Um, so you live in, in the heart of Paris, uh, a city that is known for having some of the best food in the world. So this is a tough question because you're spoiled, but what is your, <laughs> what is your favorite American food? Oh, well, um, I would say milkshake if it's US, I guess. Um, at least that's what comes to mind first. Milkshake is hard to beat a milkshake. I love it. <laughs> Okay, so Jean-Michel, last, last question. Who is Satoshi Nakamoto? Wow, can, can I, uh, how, how many hours do you have? Um, because um, I, I, honestly, I, I don't know for sure. Uh, and actually, the more I think, uh, and every time I change my mind, right? So initially, I thought it was a person uh, that was a UK-based people, probably. Uh, and in the past four years, I changed my mind. I, I thought it was a group of people. And now I'm back thinking that it's probably a single person again. But I think it's all about the magic of Bitcoin. So I, I'm not even sure to know, really want to know who he is. For me, it's, big, it's a bit like Banksy, right? So I think it's yeah. uh, Banksy, the, the street artist. Uh, I think what does the magic is this person, nobody knows who he is or who she is, um, designed that. And, for the, and now it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a 700 billion uh usd assets uh and it's crazy to to have that in the in the past 12 years so i i don't know who he is or who she is or who they are um but it's uh i think it's uh amazing and uh, i really like it yes not to know who, who, who they are <laughs> <laughs> so we will end there uh, jean-michel thank you whatever you think about this space whether you know whether you're a bitcoin maximalist or you're uh, a skeptic I think it's great to have people like Jean-Michel who are thoughtful on both sides of the equation, who've given uh, a lot of thought to, to the potential upside and the potential risks, uh, and who can explain it in, in everyday language. So thank you so much for, for sharing your wisdom with my listeners, and thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Daniel, and uh, nice talking to you all, guys, and see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.